you can't have meaningful conversations without connecting this back to who you are and who you want to be. You can't just do it because it's in the headlines because we see companies that did that and didn't interrogate who they are as an organization. They're the ones that are most quickly abandoning those efforts, right? So that aware stage is really important. It's foundational. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. Our podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a process. It is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does take effort, commitment, and a strategy. That is exactly what Dr. Ella Washington has been working on for her entire career. Dr. Ella Washington is the founder and CEO of Elevate Solutions and a professor of practice at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She is also the co-host of Gallup's Center of Black Voices Cultural Competence podcast and author of The Necessary Journey, making real progress on equity and inclusion. In this episode, Dr. Ella Washington talks about putting the thought and research of DEI into practice and ways on how to do so. So I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm a proud person from North Carolina. Durham was a very, I wouldn't say small city, but it's one of those cities where it's about three degrees of separation for everyone. To the extent that now uh, in my home of Washington, D.C., if someone says they're from Durham, I ask them what year they graduated high school. And if it's in three to four years and when I graduated, we either know each other or know someone who knows someone, right? And so I love that. I love that about my hometown. And I also loved that Durham was a historical Black city. Um, and by that, I mean, during uh, the, the period right after the Civil War, it was actually known as the Black Wall Street. So where's it? There's a sign downtown Durham that says home of the Black Wall Street. And at the time, it was the place that had the most black owned businesses, especially in finance between Atlanta and Washington, D.C. So it was like a hub of sorts. And, you know, that was really powerful to know that history of my city. And though there is also the very real implications of being in the southern part of the United States. And, you know, race did come up often. It came up when schools were redistricted when I was a young child. It came up when the Duke Lacrosse scandal happened uh, when I was in high school. And so there were these moments where while the community was very united generally, there were certainly moments where race 
really came up as a challenge. And even in my own personal growth and development, you know, I was the only often black woman in my AP classes, right? Or one of two. While the early part of Ella's life was attributed to her desire to learn more about diversity and inclusion, it was Spelman College, the historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia, that made her want to embark on this DEI journey. When I was at Spelman, I looked around and, you know, to the outside world, we were a very homogeneous space, right? You know, everyone is a, identifies as woman, everyone is African or African-American descent. And so you may think that diversity and inclusion wasn't a thing. But for me, it was really fascinating as a budding psychologist, as a psych major, to see how human nature naturally will find and exacerbate difference, even if we look homogeneous on the outside, right? And so it wasn't about your race or your gender, but it was about where you were from or what socioeconomic status maybe that you had or what freshman dorm you stayed in or what sorority you were in, right? And so most of that stuff was done in good college fun. But it was still interesting how we like to in-group and out-group ourselves, right? And so that interest led me to continue to want to study diversity and inclusion in graduate school. I went to Northwestern in Chicago and spent a, a great four and a half years at my PhD program. And that is where I decided I really want to focus in on the work of diversity and inclusion. At the time, it was just diversity and inclusion. Now it's DE and I. And yeah, and I've I've never regretted it. I mean, it was a challenge to, at the time, I was told directly by some advisors, like, well, you can't study race because you won't be taken seriously as an academic because you're Black, right? And it's interesting. I, I said this on a previous podcast and I had so many people say, yeah, me too. I was told that too, right? And so there was an era, I think, you know, in the past 15 years or so, and prior to that, that there was this notion that if you're a woman, you shouldn't really be studying gender. If you're Black, you really shouldn't be studying race because people won't take you seriously. And I'm glad that that didn't, you know, deter me from the studies. And, and now I've had a wonderful career in the space. Thank you for, for sharing that journey and taking us through also the education, the, the culture. DEI was not something that you could find experts to come into an organization to talk about. You could find people to talk about leadership. You could find people to talk about the organization, high performance teams. And now there's this really stellar group, which you are among, of DEI scholars that are really helping us understand what we're going through at this time. So one of the things I wanted to to ask you, I looked into your background, looked at your bio. I wanted you to talk a little bit about what you do um, with Gallup, the Gallup organization. My introduction to Gallup was when I worked at Pfizer some years ago. And when I joined Pfizer at that time before Pfizer got its own organizational survey, we use the Gallup survey, the Gallup employee engagement. And I will never forget, do you have a best friend at work? That was like <laughs> mm. the thing that we looked at. Did people say they had a best friend at work? Okay, this is good. So tell me, because that's how we know Gallup, but now there's a focus also on DEI. So I'd love to learn a little bit about what you're doing there, as well as your role at the university, what you're teaching, what does it mean to be a professor of practice? We'll go a little bit into a little bit deeper into to your origin. Awesome. So, you know, something you should know about me is 
I, I see my mission, especially in my professional life, is to elevate humanity in the workplace. And so everything that I do is focused on that in some way. And one of the guiding lights of my work is the marriage of research and practice. And so I'm very much an academic and I'm very much a practitioner. And I love both parts of, of that work. And I often ask myself, especially when my schedule gets a little too full, like, you know, am I doing too much? But I think like, okay, you know, I can scale down in, in different ways, but I have to have that research to fulfill me. I have to have the practice to fulfill me. And the teaching is part of that. And so at Gallup, when I was there as a full-time associate years ago, I helped to develop the diversity and inclusion practice. When I joined, they didn't have a DEI perspective. And so I wrote, you know, the first perspective paper on diversity and inclusion at the organization, which is really cool because the organization had already been studying human nature and, you know, what makes people thrive in the workplace, but they just hadn't done it from a, a diversity and inclusion lens. And so I was happy to lend my expertise to do that as well as to support clients. And so as the relationship has evolved now, I'm a senior scientist at Gallup. So I'm no longer a full-time associate, but I have the opportunity to still work with the amazing colleagues and do research and writing. And we have a podcast called Cultural Competence. And, you know, all of these things kind of look at how we can have more inclusion and equity in the workplace using all the wonderful data that Gallup has. Gallup has a wonderful center of Black voices. I highly recommend you look them up. They publish data quarterly around what is the state of the workplace, especially for Black Americans. And so they have a I think 20-year commitment to get this data every single year and share it for free publicly. So I highly recommend you look into the Gallup Center of Black Voices. Wow. I had no idea. So those things that you're looking at, how does that help in us driving workplaces that I say are built for the future, which I believe that DEI is a huge piece of that? What are some of the findings or things that you're seeing in your work there, also in your work at Georgetown, that can help us understand what do we need to do now to stay the course, to stay the course in the work that has been started around DEI in organizations? So DEI is a very kind of individualized process and experience based on the organization you're in, based on who you are. I often say there's no one-size-fits-all approach to DEI, but it is helpful to understand the collective experiences people are having within organizations and what the data can help us to learn as we strategize for the future. And so Gallup, you know, has always been known for getting the pulse of the people, if you will, through their surveys and polls. And that's exactly what they're doing now at the Center of Black Voices to understand what are the collective experiences of not only, you know, people that are Black or African-American descent, but also everyone else in the workplace too. And how do we understand how the last three years, for example, has had an impact on how people view the workplace, how people view diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, and some of their other work also looks at like leadership, you know, what's happening at the leadership level? What are people focused on? What should they be focused on? So I think data can be our friend, especially if we are thoughtful in how we collect it and how we use it. At Georgetown, I think it's really putting that into to practice in the courses that I teach. So I teach courses at the undergraduate level on DEI in the workplace, which is so cool because this is the opportunity to talk to undergrads about these important topics mm -hmm. before they even enter the world of work. I like all the things that you're doing. Um, just kind of a, an aha on the fact that there are courses 
being taught to undergraduates, to business school students on DEI. That's really important. And is that something that has been happening for a while or is that new? You know, I think it depends on the university. So the study of diversity management is 40 plus years old. So like the work is not new, but schools prioritizing that, especially in business schools, I think it depends, you know, on the faculty that are there and push for that. There was no class called DEI in the workplace when I joined Georgetown McDonough. Um, and it was something that it was important for me to develop and implement. And I had the school's uh, full support, but someone has to do it. So part of it is like the school's having someone to do that work and have that expertise. And I have many colleagues that teach them across different universities, but kind of always depends on who's at the institution and, and does the institution really prioritize that topic to be in the curriculum. So in speaking about learning and something that that you said, learning and change, I'll, I'll talk a little bit, of, uh, ask you a question about that. You talked about the last three years and I, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into what have you seen in terms of DEI happened that we didn't, maybe not, we didn't see in the, you know, we saw the headlines, we watched the news, but what are some things that you have seen in terms of changes in the last three years in this particular area when it comes to DEI and organizations? I've seen the biggest pendulum swing I think I could have ever imagined as far as support for DEI. You know, I was cautiously optimistic in 2020 optimistic because I can't do this work if I don't have optimism, but cautious because I know the history of this work. And I have colleagues that have been doing DEI from the very beginning when it started 40 years ago. And I've been in this space my whole career. And so I know that many of those promises should have been met with skepticism, right? So cautiously optimistic is where I was. And as we see today, the headlines are completely the reverse of what they were in 2020. And I know a lot of people are, are hurting right now, you know, seeing what's happening with transgender rights, seeing what's happening with affirmative action, seeing what's happening in specific states with the legislation that is basically against diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And I too am hurting and frustrated, but unfortunately I'm not surprised because, you know, part of what I do is I study human nature and you can look back over history and there's always been these ebbs and flows of support. And so, one thing you can do is be encouraged that this is a moment, just like 2020 was a moment, 2023 is a moment, and there'll be more moments in the future. And what's important is for us to stay the course. I'm glad to hear that. And I think that's important is the importance of staying the course, being consistent to the commitments that were made and showing the progress. You know, people are ready to see the progress. What are your thoughts on progress that you've seen? Are there any specific examples of where you've seen organizations move the needle in the last several years? So in my book, The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion, I talk about the three areas that every organization should be thinking about no matter where they are on their journey. And those three areas are their purpose, their pitfalls, and progress. And so just to quickly iterate, you know, purpose is about what are we trying to accomplish here? Like, what is this work all about? What does it mean for us? Why is it important for us? Right. Got to get really clear on your why in anything in life. Right. And in this work, it's no different. Pitfalls is that opportunity to hold up 
the mirrors in front of ourselves and have an honest and transparent conversation as an individual leader, as an organization, what is holding us back? You know, we have these goals and how we want to show up, but there's probably things that have happened, things that we've done, missteps that are keeping us from achieving that goal. So being honest about what's holding us back is that second P. And that third is progress. And for me, progress is about having metrics to track our success. Progress requires short-term and long-term goals because to your point, if you're just focused on the big lofty long-term goals, it can really be frustrating and demotivating. But if you have short-term goals, what are the things that we can accomplish in the next six months and how do we track that? What are the things that we want to accomplish in two and five years and 10 years? And so it's great to have that, but in order for this to be a journey, we have to have different markers on that journey. We need to be able to visualize progress. Dr. Ella Washington talks about some of the progress that she has seen in DEI in recent years. I would say the biggest area of progress I've seen over the past few years is companies moving from the very tactical stage where there's usually a proliferation of programs, like I like to say, to the integrated stage where they actually have a strategy. And it may sound simple, but, you know, so many companies prior to 2020 and the surge, you know, of this work in, in our particular era had been doing things a lot, you know, just doing programs and some of them really good, but they weren't seeing shifts in their metrics. They weren't seeing actual progress. And it's because they didn't have a strategy. Programs are not a strategy. They are a part of a strategy, but you need goals. You need accountability. You need different work streams. DE&I, it's not one thing. You should have different work streams around diversity, work streams around inclusion, work streams around equity and belonging and justice or whatever else that your organization values in their DEI strategy. And you have to have a vision of where you're going, right? You can't just do things and expect things to change. You have to, just like any other strategic plan, there has to be a vision. And so I've seen organizations really take that seriously and create strategies that they're now enacting, right? And the challenge is that with any strategy and especially a strategy that deals with culture and human behavior and human nature, it's going to take time. So even the best strategy is not going to happen overnight, but having a strategy is setting companies up for much more success. And those are the companies I think that are staying the course more because they understand the big picture. They understand that this is a strategy. This is a journey. This is not just us implementing two or three things and expecting it to you know, work magic overnight. Absolutely. I think taking the strategic approach and the systems approach to really looking at these three Ps that you talked about, what is the purpose? What are we trying to do here? Why are we here? What's this all for? And understanding the pitfalls. The pitfalls, I would also say part of pitfalls could be managing resistance. We're seeing resistance and pushback to DEI. And what that does is it makes people question within organizations, why are we doing this? Is this work important? What would your advice be on managing resistance? We need to hear it, but how do we continue to stay the course when it is mounting? Well, first I would say, you know, a phrase that I grew up on, if they're not hating, then you're not doing your job, right? And so I think that 
is something we have to keep in mind. We are doing something impactful and meaningful if we're getting this resistance. So understand the resistance is part of this process. From a business school perspective, we teach about change management, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, at any change management initiative, you're going to have and you should expect resistance. You have to understand where that resistance is coming from. So at the organizational level, don't treat your resistors all as haters. Sometimes they can really be helpful to your progress. I think, you know, in change management, if you're able to bring a early resistor over to your side, they can often be the highest adopters and the best advocates for your work, right? So, you know, when we're thinking about getting resistance in organizations, use that as an opportunity if you can. Now, there's another level of resistance as well, though, that we're talking about more broadly of people who clearly just disagree at a very fundamental level with the purpose and the mission of this work. And that is obviously more difficult to to handle. You know, one, I think it's just acknowledging that it's hard, right? Because some of this is not about having the right answer. It's about continuing to fight where you can, continuing to consider your entire sphere of influence and how you can make change. When people are resistant to DEI, we have to pull them along and inspire them. That is why inclusive leadership is essential to foster DEI progress. Dr. Washington speaks to the importance of senior leadership to guide their employees through this DEI journey. Part of how you do that is, I would say, the fence sitters is, you know, thinking about this is everyone's responsibility. So a lot of times we think of DEI in our organizations as the chief diversity officer's responsibility, if they have one, or the head of HR's responsibility, or even the responsibility of the senior leadership team, because they, you know, they run the show. And while the top of the house, as you mentioned, are responsible for setting those strategic directions, setting the the big goals, each one of us is responsible for bringing that to life. In my book, I talk about the fact that DEI has to be both top down and bottom up. And so the top down part, we usually have that covered. It's the bottom up part we struggle with and not realizing that every single person in the organization, no matter if they just started yesterday or if they've been there 20 years, whether they run a team of hundreds of people or their individual contributor, they're all cultural carriers for the organization. And so they all should know what's expected within this organization, how we expect them to live out the values of the organization on a daily basis. And then when you think about continuing up that pathway to managers, I think managers are the most untapped part of DEI strategies because they are often left out of the conversation and they are the the opportunity for the biggest feedback loop for senior leaders because they are on the Mm -hmm. ground with their teams every single day and understand how these policies affect their team members. They understand what's working and what's not. And so what we have to do is encourage them to have conversations about what's working and what's not, and also create spaces for them to give that feedback loop back to senior leaders. And when I say create spaces, I mean, hold them accountable. Absolutely. The manager is is so key. And the impact that a manager has on their teams, on their colleagues is really essential. And I I think there's an opportunity for us to uh, start to do more campaigns on the impact that you can make as a manager versus here's one more thing. (laughs) Here's yet one more thing for for you to do. As we close out, I wanted to thank you for writing the book, 
necessary journeys. Everyone, you must go out and get this book. And this is not a book that you read one time. You know how people are like, oh, I'm reading right now. No, this is this is a guide. This is something that you are going to be constantly learning from. What made you put it together? I'd love to hear more about that process of, of writing the book and getting it out. And what do you hope for, for all of us to pick from that and be able, if it's even just one thing that we can take today and take back into our organizations? So I think back to the summer of 2020, where I was talking with and leading many town hall and listening sessions. And I had so many interactions with CEOs and chief human resource officers. And they would say at the end of our session, whatever it was, okay, great. I buy into everything you're saying, but I have a question. You know, where actually are we on this journey? And then they would follow up and and how do we compare to other people? And those are very good questions, right? And those are questions we would expect from leaders. But I found it fascinating that I kept getting that question over and over again. I mean, countless times in those months, those same two questions kept coming up. And so this this notion of DEI being a journey is not new. I didn't make that up, right? We, we have been saying DEI is a journey forever. But what did feel different is that people didn't really understand what the journey was. Like, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Like to say DEI is a journey. And so my goal was to demystify what DEI is all about and to demystify what the journey is. And so part of what I provide in the book is the research I've been doing for many, many years, well before the inception of the book, on this journey, on the framework, on those five stages of the DEI journey. But I felt that it was most impactful to bring this research to life through stories. Because we know from, you know, research tells us that people will remember stories that are told. So we may like facts and figures and data in the moment, but what we remember well after the fact is the story that experience someone shared with us. And so I wanted to complement all of the wonderful work that was already out there that had, you know, frameworks and checklists and things like that and provide the other side, that human Mm. side, that narrative side. Because when we're trying to figure out what this journey is, I think what better way than to see other companies' journeys. And so nine very brave and courageous companies candidly shared with me where they had been and where they are going, what they struggled with and their successes. I really like that. But what about these five stages of the journey? And I, I think we, we do refer to DEI as a journey, but you know, we act like business isn't a journey. Business is a journey and it changes. It has ebbs and flows. There was a quote by John Maxwell and it said, change is inevitable. Growth is optional. Mm. And, you know, I said, okay, well, let's then the next part of that quote, if I had to add more, is choose growth. So what can we learn from these five stages of the journey that will help us in our growth process? So when we think about the the journey, right, there are five stages and then there's an evolution stage too. And so if you think about the acronym ACTIVE, because we love a good acronym, (laughs) That kind of tells the story of the journey. So first is awareness. It's companies trying to figure out where they actually fit on DEI topics. What does DEI mean for them um, as an organization? And how does it connect to their mission and purpose? You can't have meaningful conversations without connecting this back to who you are and who you want to be. 
you can't just do it because it's in the headlines because we see companies that did that and didn't interrogate who they are as an organization. They're the ones that are most quickly abandoning those efforts, right? So that aware stage is really important. It's foundational. Then you move to the compliance stage and compliance is all about making sure we are clear on the EEOC laws or other state and local standards that we have to follow so that we do not find ourselves in litigation and we do not find ourselves, you know, being uh, parties to discrimination. And compliance is not bad, but many organizations get stuck in compliance because it can be seen as doing the bare minimum. You know, we're just doing this so we don't get sued, literally. We want to move beyond that. Compliance is part of the process, but we move beyond compliance into the tactical stage. And in the tactical stage is all about what are the areas of opportunities and the areas of excellence that we have or that we are developing around DEI? So that is where your programs come in. And so at the tactical stage, there's good stuff going on, but there's not often an integrated strategy. And so we want to move beyond just those proliferations of programs and into an integrated stage, which is the next phase. And integrated means that we think about DEI as part of everything that we do. And when we look across our entire sphere of influence, we can connect our DEI efforts. It doesn't mean we're perfect across all of those spheres of influence and doesn't mean that we're at the same level across all the spheres of influence, but we've been thoughtful and it's a part of our strategy. And then we're not done though. Even when we're doing all that good work, uh, we have to make sure it's viable or sustainable. And that means looking across, you know, the impact that we've had over the years and saying, okay, are efforts viable even when we've had a change in CEO or the leadership? Are efforts viable and sustainable even when there's a change in the economy and we're challenged with, you know, changes in the economy? And so we, we want to be doing those checks. And then the last but not final stage, I would say is evolution because we're always working. We, you know, we're humans, we're going to continue to evolve. And so while I know that DI will never go away because we're humans and we'll always need to be focused on this, I do hope we continue to evolve the conversation and be talking about new things like the next generation of work or how AI is really going to have an impact on our DI efforts or the new world of work, given that we are now past the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there's always going to be evolution. We're never done. And so we should get it in our brains that, you know, this is a part of who we are now and how can we make the most impact? Thank you, Dr. Ella Washington. It has been a pleasure. And I mean, I could just come and sit in the class and just take notes and be a student. I tell you, um, this has been an amazing conversation. I can't wait to continue and follow up and, and, and talk more with you. Thank you so much for taking the research that you've done, the experiences that you've had, and put it in this book. One last thing before we go, I do want to ask you, what is one thing you are excited about in terms of the future that could have a tremendous impact on DEI? What is, what is something that has your attention and interest? I am really curious and excited about us redefining what diversity means, because if we think about the demographics of the United States, minority as a term won't make sense by the year. I think it's 2055. And demographically, you know, people that are non-white are going to be more than people who are white, right? And so at that point, we need new language. We should be using minority anyways at this point, marginalized identity, traditionally marginalized, um, traditionally excluded. I mean, the list goes on. So look into that. But 
we go from that traditional sense of minority, like we we won't be minorities. And so I'm curious to see how we're going to navigate that change, that difference. And, you know, with that, what are the things of the future that are going to be really top of mind for us, right? As we continue to evolve and grow as a society. And so I'm always super curious to see what the conversation is going to be moving forward. As a professor, I get to see how generations are thinking differently about the same topics. And one day I can teach people across 30 different years uh, of experience between executive MBAs, MBAs, and undergraduate students, right? And so I can have the same conversation and it goes different places. And so I'm so blessed to be in a space where I can remain curious. And and that's one thing I encourage all of us to do as we see the world changing, even the negative things that we see, remain curious because uh, I think that's, that's what we owe ourselves in order to do this work. Awesome. That's a great call to action too, for us to remain curious. Well, that's it for us in this particular episode. Thank you again, Dr. Ella Washington. Check out the book, Necessary Journeys. We'll have it in our show notes. And that's it. Thank you so much, Cindy, for having me. Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. To learn more about Dr. Ella Washington, check out the links in our show notes. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. The link is in our show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you also take the time to rate and leave our show a review. Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show. That's it for today's episode. I hope you join me in the next one.